Today's episode of Your Stories is brought to you by Emporium Arcade Bar. Emporium hosts awesome game, beer, food, and live music events daily in Wicker Park and Logan Square. Visit EmporiumChicago.com for more info. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, Comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Garneau, and this is your spooky first part of A Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories episode all about horror stories. For the first time in four years, it made sense to record a relevant Halloween episode, so we did. This week, you'll hear from Andrew Bentley, Katie Utke, Nate Bechtel, Will Hinmark, and Shelby Mongan, plus Dwight Hessler and I do some music. It's gonna be terrifying. Uh, before we get to the show, I've got just one small plug. Uh, if you're an East Coast person, Pennsylvania in particular, the Nerdalogs will be visiting you soon. Check us out on Saturday, November 7th at Pittsburgh Arcade Comedy Theater, where we'll be presenting a special Greatest Hits sketch show in the Iron City. Uh, this is kind of a homecoming show for group member Katie Johnston-Smith, and it should be a ton of fun. So if you're close to that area, check us out. You can find a link to tickets on our website, www.nerdalogs.com. Uh, otherwise, I'd like to thank our friends in the Chicago Podcast Co-op, and once again, shout out to our sponsors for the episode, Chicago's Emporium Arcade Bar, which is a wonderful place to hang out, so please visit them. You will have the coolest time. Uh, that's all I've got for now, guys, so get ready to be scared. So this is a song by the son of the head of what, Island Records? I don't know what record label he, he is the head of. This was his only hit. He has a very famous person singing the chorus uncredited because there was some legal issues there. But uh, it's only because his dad is, is uh, you know, the head of the record company. He could get uh, Michael Jackson to sing the chorus of this song. And really what I want you guys to take away from this song is that nepotism is the most frightening thing of all. <laughs> One, two, three, four. an average life. I work from nine to five. Hey, hell, I pay the price. All I want is to be left alone in my average home. But 
That's the only reason I know that song. That video's fucked up. <laughs> also, those are the actual lyrics that Dwight was singing. That wasn't a joke. I mean, it's kind of a joke, but it's not a joke. It's kind of a joke. <laughs> this, is so this is a real creepy song. But a lot of people have really loved this song. So, who's watching me? The answer is Gordon Sumner. <laughs> I dream a lot, I can only see your face 
enjoy watching, right, buddy? Uh, he is, he is, uh, yeah, yeah, on stage. Uh, he's an emeritus member of the Nerdalogs, part of the sketch group Rabbit Rabbit, incredibly funny and talented person, Mr. Andrew Bentley. Hi, everyone. Uh, I am Andrew Bentley, and uh, this is Oatmeal. Uh, for those of you... Listening to the podcast, uh, oatmeal is a, a stuffed animal, more specifically a Canis lupus familiaris, or dog, uh, and uh, <laughs> more specifically a border collie. Uh, and I realize he may not seem on point for the theme of horror. I mean, look at him, he's adorable. Uh, and he wasn't actually the first thing I thought of. I thought first about... Uh, telling you about Mrs. Bierbauer, who always used to hand out uh, church tracts on Halloween uh, instead of candy. And then one year, my friend and I decided to blow up our mailbox with the M80s. And after we did, we discovered that in the intervening year, she had moved away, and we had just blown up someone else's entirely. Uh, but that's pretty much the story right there. Uh, and I also thought about talking about my least favorite uh, online comedy video ever, uh, which was a super high-budget parody of the Monster Mash called The Monster Fuck. Uh, but it's probably sufficient uh, just to say that the, the chorus of it was, they did the monster fuck, those monsters sucked and fucked. The monster fuck. They, uh, so, to bring it back around to oatmeal... Uh, the story actually starts with a different border collie, a live one, uh, the one belonging to my next-door neighbor, Mrs. Martin. Um, now, 
Mrs. Martin was kind of your traditional neighborhood oddball. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't weird in like a, a dangerous or a, a creepy way. She was just kind of an, an old, lonely spinster um, who you know, lived next door. Uh, we didn't see her very often. Um, in fact, really the only time we would ever see her uh, is when she would bring out her border collie, Cody, uh, to come and you know, run around in the yard. And I'd, you know, run up and down the fence with it and kind of nod my head. Mrs. Martin, you know, repeated things over and over again. Uh, but that was pretty much, you know, the only time that she ever put in an appearance outside of her house. Uh, and then one day, we, or more accurately, my, my parents noticed that uh, she and Cody hadn't actually put in any appearances in a little while. And so my dad called over to the house, got no response, uh, and so eventually my dad, you know, took it upon himself to to go over there and, uh, you know, let himself into her house and discovered that uh, Mrs. Martin, who was diabetic, uh, had gone into a, a diabetic coma, um, and so she was still alive. Um, they they ended up, uh, you know, they rushed her to the hospital. Uh, my dad probably saved her life there, but. Cody, unfortunately, uh, had been locked in another part of the house, or just, you know, not locked, but in the, the room with the door shut. Uh, and Cody, unfortunately, had not survived. So Mrs. Martin ended up coming out of the coma. Uh, you know, she came back. She was obviously incredibly broken up about Cody. Uh, and for a little while, she didn't have a dog. And then one day, while we were working in the yard, uh, a van pulled up, and they abandoned a German shepherd directly in front of our house. Like, they just pulled up, door opened, and someone basically shoved the dog out of the car, and then the car drove away. Uh, and so, yeah, right. So my folks <laughs> brought the dog, you know, back into the backyard. Obviously, we already had a dog. We weren't going to keep this German shepherd. But we figured that, uh, that Mrs. Martin might, you know, like a, a new dog. So we, we took him over uh, to meet her. She loved him. She agreed right away to take him off our hands. Uh, you know, she named him Max. And then for the, the next several years, that's, you know, we would see, you know, Max running up and down the, the fence on the other side of our, our house. Uh, and then one day we realized we kind of hadn't seen Max running up and down the yard in a while. So my dad kind of repeated the process and he uh, went over there and and let himself in. Um, he found that Mrs. Martin had uh, has gone into another diabetic coma. Um, and this time, apparently, she had not survived. But Max had. Because this time, Max hadn't been left in a different room. And so Max had uh, oh, subsisted no. on Mrs. Martin. <laughs> so. <laughs> and my dad had the good fortune of discovering that. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, elsewhere in the house, you know, he, he, I never saw it. He described the house. He said apparently she was a hoarder. There were just boxes of newspapers filling up most of the rooms with a, you know, a little alleyway for her to walk from room to room between them. Uh, but in one of the rooms, uh, he found oatmeal here, a, uh, a border collie just like Cody. And I don't know really why my dad chose to to bring oatmeal 
back with him and give him to me. Um, I think maybe it could have been he was suddenly upon seeing Mrs. Martin's partially devoured body uh, confronted or kind of consumed with thoughts of his own mortality. And maybe in that moment, you know, his thoughts turned to his children and his beloved family, and he decided to, you know, to give me something in that instant. That may have been it. Or possibly maybe he recognized in the fact that, that Cody was a, was a border collie that this stuffed animal had kind of borne mute witness uh, to Max surviving in a way Cody never could have. And maybe, and I don't know, maybe in a sense my dad that day was finally letting Cody out of the house. But regardless, I uh, named him Oatmeal, and despite all the other uh, stuffed animals I've, you know, gotten rid of her, you know, given away over the years, uh, always felt uh, I should hang on to this one. Because <laughs> you never know, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. Wow. And that was just the first story. <laughs> Guys, if I can just ignore everything really amazing you said and talk about the monster fuck for a second. So, the monster fuck is a comedy bang bang bit. I don't know why there's like a high produced video of it. Yeah, it, it is Paul Rust, isn't it? It's on the podcast. It's so fucking funny because it's by a character who clearly is like just done. Like he has nothing to give the world, but he's trying so hard to do something edgy and cool. And someone obviously got the wrong message from the monster fuck and turned it into a high produced YouTube video. <laughs> Or they got the exact right message, but on the podcast, it's very, very funny. Anyway, I've said enough about other people's podcasts. Coming up next to the stage, a friend of our show. She's been up here several times, always really great stuff to say. An actress, singer, designer, Katie Utke. You got my last name right this time. Awesome. Hi, guys. Uh, so while I was in college, I spent my Octobers working at haunted houses around Chicago. This was great for three reasons. One, this was a paying job. I got paid all of October to celebrate the best holiday of the year. <laughs> Two, this was a paid acting job. I was a musical theater major, so I was like, oh, I'm putting my degree to some use. <laughs> Three, this was a paid acting job that I didn't have to audition for. Yeah. Lit yeah. <laughs> so literally all I had to do was show up, first day, give all of my con uh, conflicts, then put on makeup, destroy my voice as I screamed at paying visitors, and then I could go to the 24-hour Dunkin' Donuts after getting off at 2 a.m. with my pretty, pretty acting paycheck. <laughs> it was really fucking great. <laughs> um, I have many horror stories and uh, silly stories uh, working at haunted houses. I'm just going to list a couple of them off. Uh, from being hit on by two middle-aged lesbians while dressed as a dead priest. <laughs> <laughs> to escorting little six-year-olds dressed as Scooby-Doo characters through the house, which everyone on staff was crazy excited about. Come on, kids, let's go solve the mystery of the haunted house! <laughs> uh, to having one of my bosses look at me and say, literally said this, I can't take you seriously because you look like you should be playing Little Bo Peep. <laughs> 
to making my first friends in Chicago, uh, to being told by the same boss uh, that I don't need to put on any more white makeup because you're pale enough. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, to having my first shots of alcohol, uh, to doing my music theory homework by street lamp waiting for the bus to get me to work, uh, and to wasting time with my coworkers talking about horror, comedy, musicals, uh, Firefly, Harry Potter, and Glee, uh, <laughs> uh, working in haunted houses basically cemented uh, me in Chicago and gave me life experiences I wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, I was a child who was afraid of everything, like 102 Dalmatians, Spy Kids, and an episode of Lloyd in Space gave me nightmares for weeks on end, a type afraid of everything. <laughs> uh, being a haunted house actor showed me the man behind the curtain, as it were, and well, I'm still afraid of everything, but it's no longer the monsters under the bed, uh, it's dealing with the, it's dealing with the actual monsters in customer service. <laughs> uh, I have one story of a person that I'm scared of that I'm super proud of. Uh, it was Halloween night and I was working at a haunted house on Navy Pier. It was my freshman year of college and I was at the pier entrance handing out expired coupons uh, in a a long leather coat and a heavily make-up face. These two guys were leaving the pier. Uh, These men were about six six feet tall, uh, in their late 20s, wearing a lot of bling, pants sagging. Uh, These guys were as quote-unquote masculine as you could be in 2010. (laughs) Uh, My sneakers allowed me to move pretty silently, so I ran up to one of them, and thanks to having a cold and, you know, phlegm, growled in one of the men's ear. Uh, I don't know if the podcast might uh, can pick this up, uh, but it sounded like this. And Eric, when you edit this later, this is not a technical glitch. He said, oh, shit, and bolted as fast down the sidewalk as he could go. His friend literally stopped and basically fell over on his ass laughing as his friend was running away. At that point, I couldn't even stay in character because it was like my big victory moment. Um, I love that story because, as evidenced by the Bo Peep comment, uh, people have a tendency to put me in the cute box, To be fair, they aren't wrong. I'm pretty fucking adorable. Uh, But I'm more than adorable. I'm also smart, funny, a relatively good singer, a collector of dolls and plush toys, and I can growl in your ear and scare you shitless. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Katie. Has anyone done the haunted house thing yet this year? Those are spooky. I don't like them. <laughs> Anyone gone to a hell house yet? And, uh, you know, got got just some of the reason of the season in you? There's oh. a great great story about that last time. <laughs> right? Is that, That's the phrase, right? It's not? It's not the phrase? Oh. I guess I guess my research has been poor. Anyway, coming up next to the stage, good friend, the world's greatest player of Magic the Gathering, Nate Bechtel. Yeah! It's not true. It's, a, it's an embellishment of my skill. It's mediocre at best. But hi. How are you all? That's good. So um, I'm not going to talk about something soul-crushingly bleak. <laughs> I think I'll be bouncing more off the hot houses. <laughs> um... Because I used to make them all the time with my dad in high school. Like, 
Yeah, we did Christmasing, decorating all together as a family, but there was something special about Halloween with my dad and I, because we both just really like the screams of children, I guess. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with us. We're family bonding. We're like, look at those little fuckers. Ten days. <laughs> and then they'll know. And we went all out. We got fog machines, tombstones. My friends were really into Hot Topic and Silent Hill, so they got into it. <laughs> you just, like, indulge them, like, yeah, it looks like something a contortionist would do, and then they're really going for it in the mist. Um, but I haven't been able to do that since I've come to Chicago. In fact, I haven't even been able to have, like, trick-or-treaters that I can hand candy out to and that. I really miss that. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> I'm just like on Halloween in clothes and like not even my normal sweatpants. I'm in jeans like an adult hoping someone will come by so I have a bowl of like shitty candy ready. <laughs> but they never come. And uh, I got to go home for my sister's wedding uh, last week. And so we got really drunk. Like my dad got drunker than my mom had ever seen him drunk <laughs> because moonshine was there <laughs> and so he and I had like drunk father son bonding time because if you don't have a dad who gets drunk all the time the time when they actually get drunk is awesome it's super magical you can tell them everything you did not want to tell them <laughs> it's so great I got to tell him about everything he hated <laughs> but that was also, it sort of hit me very oddly because it tied into something about every time I told people that my little sister was getting married, they're like, oh, can you imagine at 22? I mean, like, I can. <laughs> they, they did it. <laughs> and, like, they have a happy home together, and they're going to be decorating for Halloween, and they're going to be having trick-or-treaters. And I'm in Chicago... Really glad my dad's drunk so I can tell him about stuff. <laughs> and not having any trick-or-treaters. So, yeah, I I completely understand why they went that way. And it was super cool to see a path that I'm not taking right now and something that I really love and being able to see my little baby sister go down that path ahead of me which is bullshit because she hates clowns, and those are the best ways to, to secure your Halloween legacy. Like, we had those motherfuckers on, like, a zip line ready for kids coming down the hill. We did not play around. My dad is standing there in front of the candy bowl in a flowing black gown with a metal helmet on and a sword ready for the kids to grab candy so he can unsheat that motherfucker and run at them. <laughs> And that's what I want for my little sister, guys. <laughs> for a happy Halloween of memories like that. And so, cheers to everyone who's gained out and making sure the spirit keeps going this year. Woo. <laughs> Thank you, Nate. Have you thought about going into the mobile like candy dispensing business? Like just going around in your sweatpants, it's fine. And just finding kids to give candy to? I think you should try it. That would be a really great Halloween experience for you. New tradition. 
<laughs> I know. You would learn about the shortcomings of our penal system, and that is a true horror. Anyway. <laughs> Guys, it's getting real political in here tonight. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> so coming back to the stage, this gentleman and I, we just met a few weeks ago. He helped me, actually, he, he ran a, a D&D session at the Lincolnwood Public Library that my store sponsored. It was really cool. Uh, tons of fun to see a bunch of little kids getting into this game that I didn't know anything about. It was great. I have cool stories I can tell you from that. But this gentleman is going to tell a story. He is a writer. He is a game designer. This is Will Hendmark. So it isn't like peeling an orange. It isn't like popping a walnut. Skulls are harder than I'd imagined. How long do I have now? I'm still here, here enough to know that this is wrong. But I love my wife and I love my kids and I want to hold on to those memories and for that, I need a brain. Someone is coming, hesitating, slack-jawed. I scream at him, meaning to send him words like, Back off! Back off, fucker! This is mine! I caught this one! But I think all I holler is noise. I'm not really there. I'm in my fingertips, scouting over the surface of this slick and bloody head. I get the jaw in one hand, the cranium in another, brace the whole thing against my chest, and I pull. Something gives, but no go. His mandible waggles like a broken toy. With the head in my hands, hair stuck to my bloody fingers, I drag him to the curb. I stomp. Something cracks beneath the flesh, and I nip at it like it's cellophane. I get my fingernails into the crack, and I pull, and a fingernail breaks. <laughs> this brain, and maybe I'll remember my wife's name. So I wrote that in 2008 on a site that has since died and been buried in a graveyard behind another website <laughs> that has since died. <laughs> That story came from the same brain as an idea I pitched for a game when I was at White Wolf Game Studio, the company that made games like Vampire the Masquerade, which was a big hit in the 1990s. Some of you may have heard of the 1990s. <laughs> if you told me in 1996 when I was a fanish devotee of White Wolf, kit-bashing imitations of their games in my bedroom, that one day I would work for that company, I would have flipped out. As it happens when I worked for them, I flipped out anyway. <laughs> I fell down a well in my own head and was stuck at the bottom of that well for about a year. It turns out the medications that I was on for bipolar disorder were so bad that Wikipedia knew better. <laughs> the last game I pitched to the company was meant to put a new spin on zombies. One of the few pop monsters that hadn't yet been made into angsty, anti-heroic protagonists by the studio. <laughs> we were going to spin them by casting players as tragically heroic people fighting off zombiedom for as long as possible before their inevitable undeath. And I don't recall a whole lot about the pitch, honestly, because I was already pretty far down the well by then. I was staying up most nights in a panic, trying to work, and deleting most of the words that I wrote so that nobody would know what a terrible hack I was. I barely slept for, I don't know, about a year. And without really thinking about it, I was doing to myself what the CIA does to prisoners to get them to talk, except I don't know anything. <laughs> and as a result, my brain wasn't really working, and I don't remember much about those days. I wasn't dead, but I wasn't exactly living. I needed a better brain. The company rejected my zombie game anyway, so we figured zombies were probably at the end of their popularity cycle. <laughs> it was 2006. <laughs> you guys know the thing about vampires and zombies, right? Okay, about American politics and popular undead monsters? Right, okay, so the theory goes that zombies are scary when Republicans are in office because they represent the dangerous mob of mindless consumers hungry for the destruction of the individual, the survivor. 
right? Uh, meanwhile, vampires are scary because they represent Democrats as highfalutin wannabe European suavity that thirsts for the blood of the populace, sucking the life out of others for the sake of their own amoral and immoral existence. The time of Reagan was a time of zombie movies. The time of Clinton was the reign of Anne Rice and a generation of new bloodsuckers. Tonight, the dynamic doesn't seem to hold up. Zombies and vampires have been battling for popular appeal since the turn of this new century, and the battlefield fairly teems with sexy vampire and oozing shamblers. Perhaps it means something, the struggle between vampires and gilded and sordid castles, looming over the tumult of the living below where people are just trying to survive amidst the growing throngs of brain-prizing, flesh-hungry dead. Maybe it means something that they both persist, both refuse to die, and both are here now. Anyway, it's a good thing we didn't make my zombie game, because that didn't go anywhere. (laughs) It's for the best. I wouldn't have been around to make that game for White Wolf anyway. I was let go later for missing work. It's hard for me to handle being seen by living humans when I'm at my low points. And while the company said we were a family, it felt like they had cast me out. Like my family had left me for dead. And time passes weird when you're halfway dead. I couldn't run, I couldn't fight, and the monsters were getting closer. I know I tried to climb out of the grave I dug for myself, but I kept getting... Uh, shovelfuls of dirt in my face. And I sort of forget the order that everything happened in after that, but I took on some freelance projects and screwed those up pretty good. Uh, My wife lost her job, the housing bubble burst, and our little place went underwater. And I hid in that house, inside my head, and wandered the streets of the internet, groaning and wailing and looking for a brain. My brain. Somewhere in there, in the internet, in backlogs of Blogger and backlogs of WordPress.com, Uh, I thought I would find some trace of me that would remind me why it was that I was doing this in the first place, why it was I was writing or why it was that I was on the Internet or why it was that I was breathing air. And so then in June of 2008, I wrote that little zombie piece of flash fiction, and I didn't even see the metaphor. (laughs) I was deep in a haunted castle by then. I was the mad scientist and the monster. I was the brain in a jar, but I was also the jar. My brain was doused in toxic chemicals that it secreted. It felt like drowning in turpentine. And it occurred to me to light a match just to get the liquid out of my lungs. So we shot new little pills into me like bullets into my brain and put down the zombie that I was becoming. And when my limbs started working again, I started climbing. I mantled the edge of the well and I got the sun in my eyes. And today, as a result, I am a little bit pedantic about zombies. (laughs) Rising from the dead does not make somebody a zombie. Come Christmas time, I'm going to hear the jokes, and that's fine. But just rising from the dead does not make somebody a zombie. Vampires aren't zombies. Eric Draven, the crow, is not a zombie. He's a revenant. (laughs) Being resurrected does not make you necessarily undead or a brain eater. Shambling doesn't make a ghoul into a zombie. The ability to sprint or pass up a brain doesn't make a zombie not a zombie. Zombies come in lots of makes and models. There are a lot of ways to live, and there are a lot of ways to be dead. George Romero's ghouls and Danny Boyle's rage monsters and Robert Kirkman's walking dead can swarm or sprint or stalk, but it's not their speed or their hunger or their groaning that makes them zombies. It's the rotting. Zombies don't heal. We heal. We evolve and we change, and that changes zombies because zombies are made from us. They are us, degraded down to something base and terrible, whether it's hunger or anger or hatred. They resemble the dead, but they're worse than dead. They're destructive. And when they don't heal, and when we refuse to heal, we rot until we resemble the dead, even if we're technically alive. I chose to heal. I crawled out of my grave, and the brain I found 
was mine. Thank you. Thank you, Will. That was fantastic. Jeez, thank you so much for sharing that. All right, guys, we have one more story this half, then we're going to take a break. Uh, Miss Shelby Mongan, please. So I'm going to get real with you guys, so I'm going to sit down, which is, I normally don't, for those of you who see me normally. Oop, very close. Okay, so, oh, um, this is the single most nervous for a Your Stories I've ever been um, in my almost four and a half years of coming here. Um, but fuck it, here we go. Um, so, I've always been really fortunate that I've had a lot of really talented friends. Um, this comes from being someone who is at least vaguely creative um, and spending time in creative spaces, I've encountered some really wonderful, talented people. Um, for example, uh, one of my friends from middle and high school who I did plays with has been in a recent Skittles commercial. <laughs> and I have very weird and distinct memories of playing those sort of like odd non-games that theater school kids played to like just touch each other a little bit when they were 14 and uncomfortable and <laughs> just wanted to be near yeah um and i obviously the nerds are my friends i'm here um i've been really fortunate to meet all these really creative people but it's a weird space for me to be in because i am a jill of all trades when it comes to creative matters and i'm a master of none of them i can sort of draw i can sort of paint i can sort of Okay, I can't really dance. That one's not on the list. Um, but I can vaguely act and write and do everything, um, nothing well. But my favorite thing that I can sort of do is sing. I love to sing. I've loved to sing since I was a little kid. Um, when I was very little, it was because it was the most efficient way to get people to pay attention to me, um, which I loved. But now it's something... I just really enjoy doing. It feels really honest and organic. It's fun to me. The biggest disappointment of living with my boyfriend is that I can't sing show tunes at the top of my voice whenever I feel like it. I Without getting kicked out of the house, of course. Um, yeah, I, and I, you know, I, I loved singing and performing, and I, I really thought for a long time that it was what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I was obsessed with musical, musical theater, um, I planned on going college to study theater and to sing um, and to prepare myself to be on stage. Um, but I was never brave enough to do it. Um, and on the singing side specifically, uh, because it wasn't something that I was perfect at. And now this does, my perfection aside, um, put aside for this, I have a very clear memory of being on swim team when I was early in middle school. And I was with some of my friends who were very talented for their age, actors, singers, people that went to crazy camps that they make documentaries about to make or to do theater and musicals. Um, and I don't know why we were sitting on deck chairs singing the national anthem together after practice. Um, but I do remember opening my mouth, starting to sing, and happening to be off-key or something, and one of my friends literally pointing and laughing at me for singing. Um, and it broke my heart. And really, from that point, <laughs> um, I was terrified to sing in front of people. And I did occasionally at talent shows, and I always hated the way that I sounded, and I never felt confident. If I was in a group, I could sing loudly, and I'd really enjoy it. It's my favorite. 
But as soon as I'm the only person singing, I lose it. I go flat. I get freaked out. I don't know how to breathe anymore. My lungs get very confusing. It's terrible. But just because something is scary does not mean you shouldn't do it. Um, and I was thinking this morning, uh, so for those of you that don't know, um, I have a master's degree in theology. I'm a Catholic person, and I that though I don't talk about it a lot at your stories, that becomes a lens through which I see a lot of things. Um, and I was reflecting on something, a prayer this morning, that is about humility. And it's a prayer where you ask over and over again, give me the desire to be unloved. Give me the desire to lift up others above me. Give me the, or take away from me the fear of being made fun of and being um, rejected. And while spiritually speaking, there's a lot there, I think just living your life, that's a really interesting way to approach it, a really powerful way to approach it. Give me the opportunity to not freak out if people hear me sing and I flub a note or I mess up or I hit flat, or like completely just go flat or run out of air halfway through a line. Have me get excited for my amazing friends who can sing well, and I'll sing next to them and probably track them down slightly, but have me be excited for the beautiful voice that they give. Um, that, that prayer is something that's been with me for a really long time and has affected, and affected me really deeply for a long time. Um, but thinking about this... This story and this fear, this horror story of mine, you have to drink now, uh, that I have dealt with for a long time, this is the approach that I want to take. Um, so because of that, uh, Dwight and Eric, can you come join me up on stage? So context for this song, it has nothing to do with Halloween. Um, this is a song that I've loved for a really long time by a band who people shit on a lot. And they are great. <laughs> and I will defend them. And if you ask me during intermission, I will defend them for the entirety of intermission. Um, if, I doubt you'll know it, but if you do, feel free to sing along so I don't have to sing by myself. Yeah. 
refuse said we believe in you the overwhelming choice said i'm just a girl inside a voice if it's true if it's true if it's true then what the fuck have i been doing the last six years how did i end up here how did i find love and conquer all my fears see i made it out out from under the sun and the truth is that i feel better because i've forgiven everyone now i'm not scared of the sound or the stage or the stages i'm not scared i got friends took my call came courageous now i feel like i am Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy your stories, you might also like Match 3. Match 3 explores the cultural context of video games with Kotaku reporter Patrick Klepek, freelance writer Jita Jackson, and middle school teacher Sam Phillips. You can get more on Match 3 at their website, match3.simplecast.fm. This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com.
Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548x.